This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast is sponsored by Siberia Bar and Hotel on Bellman Street, Aberdeen. Located only 30 seconds walk away from the nearest bus stop, taking supporters to Pataudry for free on match days. Siberia Bar and Hotel is open seven days a week, all year round, and get fired in with our exclusive discounts. Head to the bar and quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pound of Foster's, a £4 for a pint of Moretti or Dark Fruits, or £5 for a pint of Fierce or a Daiquiri any day of the week, including match days. Come on, you Reds. Red slight of foot there. It's Tuesday and you know what that means. Welcome to episode 77 of the ABZ Football Podcast. I'm Gary Scott. Joining me today, it's Boxing Day. It's Graeme Steele. Graeme, how's it going, mate? Fine, thanks. Now that I'm back in the, the hot seat, there might be a lot more negativity and a lot less wrestling. Yes, that's what it's all about. Good Christmas? Yes, can't complain. Yourself? Can't complain. Lovely. The Christmas period was ruined on Saturday anyway, so, you know. Well, yeah, if you need someone to suck the life out of you, you can always rely on AFC. Absolutely. In a week that saw the pressure pile on to Jim Goodwin as a white-bearded fella and his merry band of fucking idiots gifted nine points to teams less fortunate in the SPFL Premiership. It is a slightly truncated, as we just said, recorded on Boxing Day episode of the ABZ FP. It's just Graham and myself taking you through this week's episode, which means Gav gets to listen to being slagged off as he's editing. So if there's no slaggings in here, we'll know what's happened, Graham. Absolutely, because there will be some. There will absolutely be some. So we're going to take a quick look back over our latest defeat in Paisley at St Mirren on Saturday. We'll take our usual look at the latest news from the club this week before we'll take a look at how our loanies have fared over the festive period. In Lone Watch, we'll preview our away fixture with Kilmarnock on Wednesday. And after the break, we'll bring you part three of our exclusive in-depth interview with the man who scored the winning penalty the last time the Dons won the Scottish Cup all the way back in 1990. It is, of course, the one and only Brian Irvin. But first, St Mirren 3, Aberdeen 1, Saturday the 24th of December 2022, the Smyza Stadium in the SPFL Premiership. Uh, one change in the starting eleven for Aberdeen from the side that succumbed to Sevco on Tuesday night, Matty Kennedy coming in for Jaden Richardson at right wing back. A couple of notable absences on the bench, though, with Vicente Bajau and Johnny Hayes, both not in the matchday squad. Dante Povara, yes, he is still alive with a first appearance on the bench in a while alongside Jack Milne. Uh, Rumours obviously circulating about Vinny Bajauin in the days leading up to the game, unconfirmed reports he'd been spotted at Aberdeen Airport flying back out to Holland, which were confirmed after the game by Jim Goodwin, although the official line from the club is that Vinny is unwell, in inverted commas, and will be fit to return, possibly not against Kilmarnock, but against Ross County. Although looking at Vinny's Instagram yesterday, didn't look that unwell, all I'm going to say. After a fairly bright start, from the home side, which saw an early flurry of corner kicks. Aberdeen began to dominate possession. Matty Kennedy 
working his way into good position and hitting the post from a narrow angle on nine minutes before the ball was recycled and eventually found its way back to Matt Kennedy and from 25 yards, he unleashed an unstoppable drive past Trevor Carson to give the away side the lead. I did see somebody posting about this. Lionel Messi has posters of Matt Kennedy on his wall. Thoughts, Graham? Yeah, Yeah. maybe not. Not quite so much. Hayden Colson had tried his hand from 35 yards just four minutes later, which flew narrowly past Carson's goal as Aberdeen did begin to dominate possession. And we're actually, at this point, you might struggle to believe it, knocking the ball about quite well, in fairness. This one then did settle into a little bit of a rhythm with each side having periods in possession with no real clear-cut chances being created by either side. Ethan Erehon into the book for a, let's call it crude, challenge on Duke that required some lengthy treatment for the Cape Verdean. Ayunga blazing an effort over the bar after Stuart played Ramadan into trouble. Um, there might be more on this in a minute because shortly after, Stuart was then caught on the ball. Ayunga raiding him of it. Stuart bringing him down, sent off, and after a VAR review, a penalty kick awarded to the home side. O'Hara with the penalty kick hitting it off the post, which then hits off Kelrus and bounces back in, which I think technically means it's a Crossferatu own goal. It was also your sort of perfect Aberdeen penalty to concede, wasn't it? Totally 100% self-inflicted and then effectively the keeper knocks it in. Yeah. Classic. So, yeah, classic. classic. Merry fucking Christmas. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, after that, though, much of a muchness between the sides. We went into halftime tied at one apiece. A couple of changes for Aberdeen at halftime. Duke, who in fairness had been struggling. I've seen a lot of people talk about why did we take Duke off. If you'd watched the game, he was basically fairly, he was unable to function basically as a football in the run-up to the halftime breaks. I'm not all that surprised to see him been taken off. But Leighton Clarkson taken off as well. Ryan Duncan and Jack McKenzie coming on for Aberdeen. But it took only seven minutes for Operation Hold Out for a Draw, part three of the week, to falter. Kelrus, with a mind-boggling decision to rush out, brought down Curtis Main in the box. O'Hara stepping up to convert from the spot once again. Things nearly then went from bad to worse. Ross McCrory brought Ayunga down as he was through on goal. Saints had their third spot kick of the afternoon. This time, O'Hara passed the ball to Ayunga. I don't understand why this happened, but never mind. Ayunga then stepped up but saw his penalty saved by Roos. Shortly afterwards, Christian Ramirez was off the bench for Hayden Colson as Jim Goodwin's desperation began to show. But the pattern of play remained pretty much the same as Aberdeen continued to sit in and invite some more pressure from St Mirren. Liam Scales had to head a Gallagher header off our line before we finally, finally decided to stick a couple of passes together. We forced a free kick, which led to a corner after Curtis Main hilariously ran the ball out of play. One of those prime examples about just why Getting rid of Curtis Main was never a bad decision right here. This just summed it all up as far as I was concerned. But from the corner kick, the ball eventually worked its way to Ilber Ramadani, who smashed the ball off the bar from the edge of the box with Carson beating all ends up. And this seemed to actually waken us up a little bit and give us some belief we could get something from the game. So with 10 minutes to go, we sat, we absolutely did begin to play with a bit of urgency. Jack McKenzie with a decent run into the box, his effort saved by Carson. Another corner for Aberdeen with five minutes to go presented us, I think, with the golden opportunity. Ryan Duncan at the back post, but his header went wide with him and Ramirez basically getting in each other's way at the back post. And then it was all said and done, five minutes into injury time, Roos up for a corner. Long clearance ended up being juggled by McKenzie on the halfway line. Proper Keystone Cops insert the Benny Hill theme tune over this goal. 
he lost out to Kelty, who then finished it from about 40 yards with Kelru. So let's just say struggling to get back. Struggling implies there was an effort. <laughs> it's absolutely fucking horrific. Being very, very kind. Full time, 3-1 to St. Mary and the Dons now. Three defeats from three after the World Cup break and only one win in our last five. In terms of the data... Um, Pretty grim again. Possession 33% St. Minute and 67% for Aberdeen, which is kind of startling given we played um, obviously for over a half of that game with just 10 men. Total shots, so 17 for the home side, 11 for the away. On target, 4 for the home side to 5 for the away team. Expected goals, 3.34 for St. Minute to 1.79 for Aberdeen. So, Graham, um, your general thoughts after another poor afternoon of football from Jim Goodwin's Aberdeen team. Poor result, obviously. I don't really... I know there's insert generic, it's a hard place to go. Dropping points away at St Mirren's never going to get you where you want to be in the league. With it, odds exception, you know, sometimes it's just not your day. This was not the case. That performance is way below the level of what Aberdeen needs. It's way below the level of probably what any club would accept. Uh, really, really poor all round with many people to be pointing fingers at. Who do you want to put your fingers at? Probably let's let's literally, start. <laughs> literally everyone, I think. I don't think I can take a step back and say, well, these guys were all right. I mean, in, in particular... I thought Ramadani had a decent game again, but I feel like he's... Is there not his run to touch that leads to Roos having to come out? Uh, I thought I I was, maybe I'm getting... Well, but then I know you like Ramadani. I do like him. I do. Like him. So I thought, do I, I thought, I'm playing I the Gavin role here. Okay. Well, even right. If that if that's the case, fine. Most of those guys, it's just not. You you can't be knocking the ball around and looking like actually quite competent and or good, and then something goes against you and you just crap your pants and it looks like you've never played the game before and nobody wants the ball and nobody wants to so do all the stuff you were doing before and you'll probably get another goal. Yeah. But I don't know what it is here. We just. There just does not seem to be any ability to dig ourselves out of a hole, which is more annoying because most of the holes we get into have been dug by us. Well, we'll come on to that, I guess, in a minute again, because there's some interesting stats about what we've done this season in terms of being able to come back from digging ourselves into holes. Um, But for me, it feels right now we have to talk about Anthony Stewart. Again, club captain, came in the summer. Um... You know, Wickham Wanderer fans appeared to be distraught that he he left. Um, but I don't think it's unfair to suggest he's the root cause of the result on Saturday because until the sending off, we were pretty comfortable. And the sending off just changes the entire game. And the worst thing about this is that there'd been a situation literally just 30 seconds previous to this where he gave Ramadani an absolute hospital ball. Um, Ramadani tried to play it back into him and, and we got caught. Ayunga comes through and then literally 30 seconds later he's dallying on the ball I've seen some people say he didn't get the ball in a lot of time it's maybe a fair comment but he's an experienced defender now you know he's not a young lad if he's not sure what to do he should just be getting up the park and getting rid of it and instead he's trying to play we get caught now don't get me wrong there's a lot to be said about whether a it's a penalty kick because as far as I'm concerned the foul commences outside the box um, so it should be. I, I I still don't understand how VAR has agreed that that's a penalty kick. But never mind. As far as I'm concerned, the idiots in charge looking. Well, at there's VAR. that as well. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's a red card. I've I saw some Aberdeen fans complaining about how it was a red card. I can't see any complaint about the red card there because he makes no attempt to play the ball. Um, if that had been the other way around, I would have been screaming for a red card in that situation. But we're back here again. Gav made the point on Saturday night, I think, on Twitter about you know we're we're setting ourselves up to try and play out from the back, but time and time and time and time again, we're being put ourselves we're putting ourselves under pressure here because we have a centre half fundamentally who can't play that way. Yeah, I mean. This is going to sound a bit silly. It's almost academic whether it was inside or out of the box. If you, it was a, you know, gives away the foul through just terrible play. So you're right. Not only is he experienced in terms of volumes of games, I feel like he's been playing in this league for long enough to know that it's really unlikely if you're an Aberdeen defender that you're going to get the ball in that position and have all the time in the world to dither on it before you decide what you're going to have to do. So there's no scenario there where I can cut in some slack for oh it's a big surprise that someone closed him down so just poor play all round like you say it happened moments before so be smart enough to learn from that didn't and it's not the first time it's happened well we're this season, the it. difference is maybe then he's not giving away a penalty because it's happened to maybe a bit further up the the pitch but I agree if we are if we're intent on playing out from the back then he needs to be replaced in the summer or January. We need we need yeah. guys in that can do that job. Or Goodwin has to find a way of accepting that he can't realise his vision this season because he doesn't have the tools to do the job. And he needs to find a way to make us harder to beat, but still be scoring the goals so that we can get the points. I think the most the most infuriating thing as well is this comes in a week now that we in we in the show have consistently been saying as a defender he looks all right, Stuart. You know, it's, it's when you're asking yep. to play with the ball, but it comes in a week now as well. So we haven't, we didn't review the Rangers game because it came at an awkward time in the week for us in the run up to Christmas and stuff. But he's also a root cause of, you could probably argue, two of the goals that the Rangers score in the week. That he's certainly the root cause of the first goal because um, it's a horrendous attempt at clearing the ball where he basically just lays into the path of Sakala. And then it's him and Richardson who get themselves in a right fucking muddle at the back post in the run up to the winner. So even the defending's not being done properly and then now we're here on on saturday in paisley and the issues we see from him which we know exist come back out to the fore again it's it's frankly not good enough especially for the captain of the football club yeah i think that's so fair i've certainly been one of those that's been saying i don't think he's a bad defender in games where he's just had to defend and maybe match up to someone who's bigger than him i thought he's done that side of the game reasonably well but he just can't play football and if if you're saying the one good thing he can do, he's now not doing, then there's literally no need for him to be in that team. But I don't see necessarily what your obvious options are. Well, we don't have any right to now. To replace him in terms of even just keeping the shape or changing it up. Bodies on the bench, I don't really see where you would, you'd go for changing it up. So, yeah, really disappointing. And <laughs> clearly you want your captain to lead by example, and that's not a very good example to follow. I mean, will we just touch on really quickly then? I mean, that... In fact, we can just go through it because, I mean, you have... That's the third time in a week, basically, that Operation Play for a Draw has come out in force um, after something and Equalise. Yep. Because before that, we weren't we weren't playing that way, so it'd be harsh to say we were. And again, against Rangers in midweek, I don't think we started out playing for a draw, and if we did, that went out the window after, what, seven, eight minutes when Rangers scored anyway. Yep. Um, although the last 30 minutes after the triple changes where that comes back in. And every single time we've tried to play that way this that way this week, 
three times now, it's failed every single time. We we can hold out for as long as you want against Celtic, but ultimately we still lose the game. We defend so deeply against Rangers to try and see the game out and, you know, horrifically somehow managed to snatch a defeat away from, at the very least, a draw, but what should have been a win. And then it felt inevitable once again at, uh, at on Saturday. I think even, might have been Johnny Main, um, hiya Johnny, who'd said, you know, that he was expecting... St. Mirren to score in 55 minutes and be an uphill struggle from there. And he was out by three minutes. We only we only managed to make it last our seven minutes this time round. But I don't know. But then you saw afterwards when we actually got the ball down and had a had a bit of a go, we could still cause St. Mirren problems, even with just 10 men. And I think that's the thing that seems most frustrating is I think that this idea of setting up to defend just doesn't suit the team we have at the moment. So why consistently try to do it? I don't understand this. Yeah. I think. I mean, logically, it makes no sense, doesn't matter who the opposition is, to basically just invite them on. Because something's going to happen, they won't, you know, aside from the fact that just sheer wave after wave of attack, something will happen, the ball coming to the box, there's always danger, someone makes a mistake there. So fundamentally inviting someone on, and especially like Celtic's the extreme example, where they know they can literally push everyone up because the opposition will do nothing to try and break on them, is is stupid. And it's really annoying to watch, you know, the St. Mary's a good example, you're causing teams problems, even a man down. If you actually try and take the game to them, you can cause them problems. But players decide, or the manager decides, or whatever it is, everyone decides, see that thing that's working for us, let's not do that. Let's just take a team that's not very good defensively and try and defend. I don't, I can't get it. So if the manager's mentality, which I think is what myself included, a lot of people thought it would be when it came to Aberdeen, was to be a bit negative and a bit cautious and would probably be stuffy. If that's his mentality, and someone has signed these players for him, the manager has to change or the players have to change. And we all know which one it will be. Which one will it be? The manager. Because you yeah. can only change one person, right? We can't afford to change 11. So, and actually, I should say, in general, I don't think we've got a bad team. I don't think we, I don't think on paper we have a bad team. I th- yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think we have a bad team. And Gavin could probably just fish out episodes from the glass era. At the start, where we were all saying, I don't think we've got a bad team. I don't think we do, because at times we've actually been quite exciting to watch. We've been scoring goals and there was some good play. But it's almost like there's been an approach to recruit players based on this quote-unquote philosophy that we're chasing. And then there's a managerial team that's sort of on the opposite end of the scale. The the two styles aren't really gelling, because it's like a guy who's not quite got the tools to do the job. But the club's probably like, well, the tools are fine. You know, bad workmen blames, blames the tools. Yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, I don't think on the face that we have a bad team. I think we've got an unbalanced squad. I, I don't think yes. we've recruited um, as well as we could have in certain areas, and that's where our downfall is coming from this season. I mean, I think what was interesting, we've spoken about enough, and I don't want to kind of go back over all ground again on this one, but I'd encourage anyone to go back and listen to the Lee Scott interview we did a couple of episodes back where Lee was obviously part of the recruitment team during the summer the one thing I thought was very interesting is I would have expected when and Lee touched upon this that in in a lot of clubs where you have a director of football head of recruitment etc sometimes the manager is completely removed from the recruitment process completely and there's a philosophy set at the top of the club by director of football this is how we're going to play and we're going to play I remember we spoke with Tio Tenkat about this, like back when we first started out on this. And the, the club philosophy will be we play 
4-2-3-1, whatever. You set a formation, that's your club setup, And you recruit players to fit that system. And that's what you do. And the manager then has to deal with how he makes that work. And the whole idea behind this is a lot of times it should help you build um, consistently through your club in terms of youth academy and everything. Everyone's playing the same way. So when they get to first team, they're not coming in to play in a different role they're not familiar with. But at the same time, when you recruit and you change your managers, you're bringing managers to say, you come in to play 4-3-3. You've already got a squad of players here who can play that system. You don't have to rip up everything that's been done. And I think that's what Brentford have done quite successfully um, in recent seasons. But that was why I was very interested when I heard Lee mentioned that Jim Goodwin was very integral. I expect the coach and the manager has to have a say in the recruitment. Of course he does, because ultimately these are going to be the guys he plays. But it seemed like Jim was had the overarching say about everything. Like we're, he wanted more attackers. He wanted more wide players. And again, on the face of it, I'm okay with that, that we had a manager, at least on the face of it, thinking if it's 1-1 in a game and it's tight and there's 70 minutes to go or if we're 1-0 down, I want to be able to turn to my bench and I've got like, three or four attacking players there I can throw on rather than six defenders and, and a, a, an attacker who's a like-for-like like change. I'm okay with that, but it's led to us being in a position where we are incredibly unbalanced, especially at the back. And um, We'll come on to the change, in, and this has now been heightened because of the change in system, because we've, we've touched on it before, we've gone through an entire recruitment cycle in the summer where we've set up our recruitment based around a way of playing, which was very heavily influenced by wingers, and now we've switched into a system, which means you don't need wingers anymore. So you've got guys just sitting around kicking their heels doing nothing who don't fit what, what what we're currently doing in the park. And we can come onto the system in a minute. But that was the thing I thought was most concerning a little bit around that, because I do see a lot of people saying now, well, if you get rid of Goodwin, um, what do you do? You know, we've spent a lot of money in the summer. Does a new guy come in and go, I want to play, I want to stick with 352, for example. But that means half your squad is now redundant. And now you have to go through that whole cycle again. But a lot of these guys and then won two, three, four-year contracts. Um, it's a difficult one from that perspective. It is a difficult one, but it's not a conversation that should be happening because mm -hmm. if there is a philosophy in place, it shouldn't be changing. Let's, well, we talk about the system a bit. We'll talk about the shape quickly because primarily we've we've changed shape after the United game uh, at Tanadice. It's where we changed it after the 4-0 defeat there. And... It, Actually, it's it's worked out quite neatly because the game against St Mirren at the weekend was our ninth game playing with a back three, which means we've now played th nine games with a back three. And we've played nine games with a back four, so we can have a pretty um, a pretty decent look at this. And in the whole, I think we've played all of the teams or most of the teams, like home and away, for example, in that run so as well. It's, or it's, it's relatively it's comparable. It's a perfect comparison as you could make. So with a back four, we were played nine, won four, drawn one, lost four, four 18 against 15, 13 points on the board with a goal difference of plus three. Since we switched to back three, played nine, won four, so we've won the same amount of games, drawn zero, so we've drawn one less, lost five, we've lost one more. 4-14 against 15. So we've conceded the same number of goals with a back three versus a back four. 12 points on the board, a goal difference of minus one. So the reason we appeared to shift to a back three was to protect, in inverted commas, I think, uh, Anthony Stewart in the main. Because especially the performance at Tanadice really showed up his um, inadequacies, shall we say. But switching to the back three has done nothing to help we're conceding the same number of go goals we're not scoring as many we're losing more games 
with the back three than we are with the back four. Is it time for him to consider he has to go back to the back four and this is what the squad's been set up on? And maybe the game against Comarant now, with Stuart being out of the team, gives us the opportunity to move back to that. It might be time for him to change his defence. Well, I think it's that as well. matter which shape you put out. Yeah. Maybe we could go to a back two because <laughs> dropping one doesn't impact the goals conceded, but it might help the goals the goals scored. Uh, again, this is the whole flip-flopping around. I mean, I suppose I... It's not like you should really play the, you know one system forever. I guess there will always be occasions where you need to change it. But the whole point of having philosophy is probably more often than not, here's how you're going to play. And sort of halfway through the season now, we're not sure what the answer is. I think, I mean, if you just look at those facts and if you want to be guided by just those are the, the facts, then yes, you have to change because we're worse off than we were. Yeah. On on every metric. You know, our goals, goals conceded is the same, fine. But... Not scored as many, but more importantly, your points hole is lower. So why would you not change change it back? Well, it doesn't seem to have had a desired impact. That's the thing. No, no, uh, no, it absolutely hasn't. Is it is it starting to now get a little bit more troubling, just everything that's going on now? I mean, that's three defeats from three since we came back from the World Cup. And some people might look at that and say, two out of those three are against the, the quote-unquote best two teams in the league. So... But they were both at home, and I think we should still be doing better than taking zero points. St Mirren, as well, have got a very, very good home record, to be fair, this season. They've only had one defeat at home all season. Uh, that was against Motherwell on the opening day, or the second game of the season, I think it was. You know, they've beaten Celtic at, at Pays as well. St Mirren are doing well. It wasn't an easy game by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's probably the, the manner of the defeat that's perhaps more troubling than anything else. It's our sixth defeat out of nine on the road this season, we've got a minus 12, minus 12 goal difference on the road. We've conceded 20 goals away from home this season. Um, we now have the third worst defensive record in the league. Only Kilmarnock and Dundee United have got worse. We've conceded 30 goals. United have conceded 33, which bear in mind includes a nine against Celtic and two fours. They shipped four against Celtic and four against Hearts in there as well. We've thrown away 17 points this season from positions where we've been leading. These are not good statistics, are they? They are absolutely not good statistics. And the defensive one in particular, from a man who announced it would just take what, a couple of weeks to fix. That was the easy um, part of football to sort out. Well, if that's the easy part, I'm terrified he tries to fix the difficult parts. Yeah. I, I think it's the, it's the, the defensive record is the one for me that just really fears me. Because like I say... Okay, you're th- we're only three goals better off than a United team who've conceded 17 across three games that I've just highlighted there. Yep. I So initially when we were shipping more goals than I would have liked, we were scoring and we were you know, getting victories. And, and I was actually quite content with that because the football was more enjoyable and it was more, there was more flair and creativity and attacking threat than I thought there might have been under a Goodwin team. So I was quite enjoying it. But now the goals seem to have dried up to an extent, and and particularly away from home, we're just woeful. And, I mean, the the, the defending is... It's not like we're shipping loads of goals because everyone's just playing in the opposition half and we're scoring loads. I mean, most of those goals are almost Glask-esque in terms yeah. of the hilarity. And to be in this position two seasons running that is nowhere near good enough. And this is all starting to feel a little groundhog day, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah, by that, we've... I mean, every week we're going to be like, oh, but 
if everyone else drops points and we win, we're going to qualify for Europe. I feel like we're we're not far off that again. Well, it, it, it does feel that way a little bit again, doesn't it? Because the glob is well and truly forming all over again. I mean, we're sitting in third place. I don't know how we're still third at this moment in time. Given we've come yeah. back from the World Cup break and we've not picked up a point. Um, yep. Hearts have joined us on 25 points. They've got a game in hand. But then you've got St. Johnson, St. Mirren on 24, Hibs on 23, Livingston on 23. There's only two points separating third through to eighth. And then there's a bit of a gap um, to Mullow. But I mean... You know, you look at Samirin, Samirin are, are a point behind us. They've got two games in hand. You know, it, it, it doesn't take long for you suddenly to have gone from third to eighth at this moment in time. And I think yep. that people hanging on to we're in third and we're in a League Cup semi-final, I kind of feel that that's a little bit of a red herring. Yes, the facts say that's where we're at. And it's not our fault if the rest of the league below us is not capitalising on our horrendousness. But the way results are going at the moment, I mean... I think I said it to somebody the other day. I could this 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 does feel a little bit to me a bit like last season, where you can almost see our elite, our season just teetering on the edge of a cliff, and it's not going to take long for it just to go off that cliff edge because you could lose two or three games here and be in eighth position easily. And, and, yeah. and how do you then roll back from that again? With I think the mental fragility that we see in our squad, do we have the right guy in charge to try and drive us back forward again? These are all questions I think need to be asked. No, I think that's fair. And just going back to the points, you know, that's focusing on sort of, it's or it doesn't take account of the fact that we're nowhere near competitive for the top two places. I mean, Celtic have more than twice our points. Yeah. We've got 51 to our 25 and, and Rangers have got 42 points. So, I mean, we are, we're the third place team at the moment who are miles behind yeah. the rest. And we're only 18 games in. And we're only 18 games in. So, I know... The reality of Aberdeen winning or challenging for the league probably slim, but to be blown out of the water at this stage is pretty embarrassing for a team yeah. that wants to be the third best. And yeah, you're right, third at the moment somehow, but with other teams having games in hand, and probably if you were to look at the form table, you know, it's not looking great for us currently. We're gonna have to really get going and just get a run of a run of victories, basically, to try and keep us in the hunt. Yeah. And as I say, we've thrown away 17 points from leading positions this season. Yeah, and almost inexcusable. What, but this is even almost more concerning. We haven't picked up a point this season in the league where we've been behind in a game. Yeah. And that touches on what you talked about earlier on, about when we dig ourselves into holes, we can't get ourselves out of them. Yep. And worryingly, once we've actually, when we are in a position where we're standing on top of the hole, if you want to continue this metaphor, shoveling shit onto the team below, we somehow manage to trip ourselves up and end up in the shit ourselves anyway. That, for me, is almost the most, the defensive thing is one thing. That mental character is actually the thing that's the most troubling for me because that does get me into the position of if we lose a couple more games here in this run between now and, you know, even the League Cup semi final, for example our season could very quickly disappear off a cliff edge. Again, it's it's Groundhog Day. It's exactly the same stuff we were saying last season. Would you, albeit we're a little earlier to be chatting about it, but under the team last year, you look around, like, who would you want alongside you when it's all going south? Nobody. Yeah, it's great and, when it's all going well. Yep, yep. And currently, just with the amount of points, like you say, we've chucked from leading positions and the fact that we've not been able to scrape a result if we've been behind you know there's enough of a sample size 
like it's give or take half the season. We're a game shy of half the, the yeah. league season. So it's enough to I think form a reasonable opinion without sort of panicking and be accused of a knee jerk reaction. It's just a really, really not a good look. Are we seeing any progress here under Jim Goodwin? Genuinely serious question. Gav's got his own thoughts on this and we can share about that later on, but I'm intrigued your view on this because you know, um I flashed the, the, the stats in front of you now. I shared them um, on Twitter as well after the game on Saturday. You know, if you take Goodwin's 18 league games this season, so this is not including the games where he came in at the back end of last season. This is his team from this season, 18 league games. Played 18, won eight, drawn one, lost nine, 32 scored, 30 against, got 25 points on the board and a goal difference of plus two. Now, Stephen Glass, for comparison, in his first 18 league games, Proper, not from when he took over at the back end of the season with McInnes, the, the, the United game at the start of last season onwards. Glass's record, played 18, won 7, drew 3, lost 8, 23 scored, 22 against, 24 points with a goal difference of plus 1. So we are one win better off under Goodwin. Uh, we were one, we're one loss worse off under Goodwin. Goals, yeah, we've scored a lot more. We're 9 goals up from where we were at this point last season, but we've conceded eight more goals than we did, and we're only one point better off than where we were under Stephen Glass. I mean, yeah. this is not a, would Stephen Glass have got it right and we made a terrible error in not keeping Stephen Glass on? That's not what this is designed to do, but this is more looking at, have we actually made any real progress here? Yeah, no, I think it's fits so like, from my point of view, I never understood how Glass got the job, despite yeah. all the stuff from the club. He was never the man for the job, in my opinion. I don't see what he'd ever done to get seriously, being considered seriously for the Aberdeen job. I don't see what Goodwin had ever done to end up as Aberdeen manager. So I don't have skin in the game in terms of I liked one over the other or, yeah. you know, favouritism. I don't understand how either of them got a shot at being the Aberdeen manager. What I will say in defence of glass is Goodwin has been heavily backed in comparison. I mean, decent money has been spent on players. Yeah. And he's had the recruitment people getting the players. I think it's fair to say Glass came in, didn't have the same budget, and then I think, by all accounts, basically ended up having to sign the players, which was not... It's suboptimal. Yeah, well, suboptimal, and I don't believe that was what he was sold, because the whole yeah. noises from the club was the manager doesn't sign the players, or, you know, that sort of... Well, that was the key control. reason why... That's why Glass was candidates allowed, were exactly. ruled out. Yeah, Exactly, yeah. so Glass was signed on the basis of, here's the stuff you won't have to do that's why you're being considered. And then when he gets in, they're like, oh yeah, but now you have to go do it. So, And that doesn't excuse some of his recruitment that he did, right? Not at all. Some of his recruitment Nothing was excuses Jack Gurr. No, and, and Gavin, Gavin's counterpoint to this will be, Stephen Glass was pretty well backed as well because Ramirez and Scott Brown wouldn't have been here on pennies. Um, we were willing to put the budget out there for like, Alan Russell to join. Declan Gallagher probably came on a relatively decent wage. I imagine David Bates probably did as well. Marley Watkins... That'll be Gavin's counterpoint to this: is that Glass was backed, but I, I think, think there's a, di- I th- there's from, a for me fundamentally there's a difference between that and transfer fees. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. So that is a good point that we found the money to pay decent wages, but for Goodwin, we found the money to pay decent wages and chucked, you know, a couple hundred grand, three, four hundred thousand around more than once. On we probably spent about one and a half million, between one and a half and two million, I think, on players in the summer. Yeah, which Glass didn't get. And then the wage bill, you know, was probably there or thereabouts. I mean, people move on in the period, so it's difficult to compare. But it's not like we've been 
spending money and the guys don't get paid anything, for example. Yeah. So I think Goodwin has had more financial backing than Glass did. He's had the system in place that's supposed to help him. And Gav's counterpoint to this will also be Glass knew there was no head of recruitment or no director of football in place when he took the job, so he should have known about it. You assume he knew, but you don't know what he was told in terms of who was arriving and when they were arriving. And it's again, it's a fair point from Gavin. He walked into that situation, presumably eyes wide open, and he knew he wasn't getting the structure that he wanted. But he maybe thought, well, I can get through that for one window, and then I'll have the structure, and then I can build it from there. And the counterpoint to that also goes back to Stephen Glass is never going to turn down the Aberdeen job if it's offered to him. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm not, I have no criticism of Stephen Glass for taking that job. I mean, who knows what he was or wasn't told and what he was aware yeah. of, what he'd done in terms of his own research and homework. Fundamentally, this, you know, without being critical, there's a guy who's got no coaching experience at all or managing experience. Yeah. Well, I would say in general, and then gets an opportunity to manage Aberdeen. If, if anyone who's working gets the opportunity to get promoted above their station, you're going to do it because if it works, you've jumped the queue. Yeah. And if it doesn't, well, you can always go back. Yeah, exactly, which is what he's doing. So he's he's going to go back to the States. He's going to probably rebuild his coaching side from there and we'll see what happens with Stephen Glass going forward. Exactly. So nothing against him for taking it, but I'm of the opinion that Goodwin has been given better tools to do the same job and is making a hash of it. And, and I, I also see a lot of people talk about how, well, you know, Goodwin inherited a mess of a squad and we had to do this huge turnover. True. Absolutely true. There's no there's no denying that. At the same time, I would also say that Stephen Glass inherited a fucking nightmare position as well when he came in the door. We had no strikers on the books signed beyond the summer when he came in. You know, there was no one was signed up ready to go. I think we only had one centre-half who was signed up on the books for the following season. That was Andy Constantine. Tommy Hoban and Ash Taylor were out of contract and didn't want to sign new deals. Um, we had so many centre midfielders on the books. It was unbelievable. You know, it's hard to... It's hard to suggest that Stephen Glass had an easier task of it than, than Jim Gooden did. Again, let's like say, it's not to suggest that Stephen Glass was the answer or that he would have gone on to to, to succeed as Aberdeen manager had he been given more time because I think that the writing was already on the wall when we got to the Scottish Cup uh, game against Motherwell last season but you know for my money I'm not entirely convinced that we're really seeing significant enough progress under Jim Goodwin to 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 allow him to have a lot of goodwill in the bank shall we say I, I would agree and even if you just cut aside points of view on Who's been backed and what? 25 points after 18 games is pretty poor. It's a point more than a manager that a lot of people consider to be one of our poorest managers. Yeah. So those are the two facts that I don't really think are up for debate. I don't see how you can make a case for improvement based on that. And this is going to be the interesting part, is it, for, for Dave Cormack and co, I guess, at the board, because glasses season really fell off a cliff after we came back from winter break remember we beat Edinburgh in the cup we drew with Rangers and then we didn't win again got knocked out of the Scottish Cup at Motherwell and that was it so I think he lost four out of the f- four out of the five after the Rangers game I think including the Motherwell game you know if Goodwin goes on a run here where he loses the next three loses the League Cup semi-final and loses one more afterwards you're into very similar territory all of a sudden and what then therefore made it the right decision to bin Glass versus making the decision to to rid somebody else. I'm not now again I'm not saying that this is 
what needs to happen. But I think we had a really, Gav always goes back to it. We had a really interesting chat with Joel Scared about this when we talked about Hearts a couple of seasons ago and around how far too often in football, people wait until the until the worst possible thing has manifested itself before taking action rather than being proactive and going, you know what, this is not working. This is not, and before it gets to the point where it's critical, you make the decision to pull the plug on something. Now, I can't see it happening. Dave Cormack's already given Goodwin the dreaded vote of confidence on Christmas Eve. You know, he says it's going to take two or three windows to sort out. That said, we were told it was going to take Stephen Glass two or three windows to sort out, and he didn't get two or three windows. Yeah, no, I, I'm not at the point of he needs to go, but there are so many parallels to last season that were perilously close to that trigger point. And if it doesn't happen, what makes this more successful in the opinion of the club than last season? Because we're going to be around about the same point and that same point wasn't deemed good enough before. So why is it now suddenly good? Exactly, exactly. Um, should we take the option to move on now? I feel like we've kind of flogged that one to death a little bit. Um, yes. Gav did message to say that um, his one observation from the St. Mirren game was, fuck Kel Roos. Um, and I've seen Gary track back with more intensity for the third. It's a fair point. And also, Jack McKenzie must have found, remember Carlon, who could do yeah. the seal dribble, must have found that footage on YouTube and tried to replicate it, but he's no Carlon. It's uh, all round. No, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he thought. I, I, I mean, he obviously thought I can take it and try and play it, and he's made a just pathetic all round. And then you've got Roos just like <laughs> ambling back. Yeah, jogging at the pace I can with my knees these days. Pathetic. Always. I don't even understand why Kelrus was up. Like there was still five minutes to play at that point. Like, I don't know why he was there. It, it, it's another one of these situations where. I think we're just going to knock this on the head, but actually, I've just like you take this, you take the game on when on Tuesday night. I sort of think Jim Goodwin's tactical or in-game management is so fucking lacking. Like people will turn around and say, the Tuesday night, if Roos if Roos touches the ball in the post or if he collects it, then the defeat doesn't happen, right? And yes, you know what? There's absolutely an art. Uh, 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 a huge, huge, huge grain of truth in that, completely. And as much as it pains me to to defend Roos, I actually think he's a little bit unsighted for that first goal, uh, for the second goal on Tuesday night as well. I, I don't think he sees it until really late. If you watch an angle from behind the goal, I don't think he sees it until late. He should still do better with it, absolutely. But the fundamental thing is, the thing is that the, the triple change just after the hour mark invites the pressure. Yeah, and it was like we were saying earlier, this... Let's defend, but we can't defend. We're shit. Yeah. yeah. But we've been playing well. We're in games. We're causing teams trouble. Yeah. Or Keep we're ahead it. by doing something. Why would you change it? I can't get my head around it. I'm, especially, point, especially given that Rangers went with a quadruple shot sub just a minute before, which w- w- meant they went really attacking. So it's like, well, counter that by not sitting in. Counter that by putting more attacking, or not more attacking, but keep doing what you're doing. Yep, yep. And cause them problems at the back as well, which means they can't continue to attack you. Yeah, but try and nullify and or waste the effect of their subs because they want to go gung-ho when they're losing. Yeah. And we are still set up to cause them a problem. Yeah. Uh, just baffling. Yeah. The and then again, say, this one, just I don't understand it. There's five minutes still to go. Why are you sending your goalkeeper up at that point? I don't yeah. understand that. The, the only thing I'm going to say in Kelrus is, in my opinion, there is a better goalkeeper on the bench and there has been all season. So Roos has had some good games, 
He's had some bad games, as any keeper will. Talk about Craig but, Sampson. Yes, Craig Sampson, now is your time. No, Joe Lewis is a better keeper, in my opinion. And I don't mean if Joe Lewis comes in, the defence is sorted, but he's a better goalkeeper. And the longer he sits on the bench, either Goodwin sees something I can't see or is too stubborn or has an ego that he can't not play his signing. And any good leader should be able to own up to their mistakes and change it out. It's not about saving face, it's about the team. Yeah, agreed. In-game management, that's also something that's really troubling me, but I think it's a completely different segment about that. So um, shall we move on from that now? It's Boxing Day, we've got other shit to do, I've got Lego to build. We really are moving on this time, yes. Yes, let's move on. On news from Patojan Comrade Park this week, nothing really major um, because it's Christmas and all that. So we can move straight to Lone Watch. Uh, Connor McLennan off the bench for the last 30 minutes as the Perth Saints were beating four goals to one at Celtic Park. Kieran Nguyenia, a start for him again, and he played for 66 minutes as Wraith sought out a Desmond at Starks Park against Greenock Morton in the Championship. Mason Hancock not in the Arbroath matchday squad once again. Evan Tiller, he returned to the matchday squad for Cove, but was an unused sub as they beat Hamilton Aki's two goals to nil at the Balmoral on Friday night in the Championship. Tom Ritchie, another start for him, but Peterhead were beaten by four goals to nil by just Edinburgh in League One. No game for for Athletic or Kevin Hanratty this week, and the same goes for Dean Campbell as Stevenage not in action either. No games for the young team or the women's team. They're on their winter break just now, which means... We can move on to our preview of our last match of the calendar year, which makes us see uh, take the long trek to deepest, darkest Ayrshire on Wednesday evening as Derek McInnes' Kilmarnock welcome the Dons to the hallowed turf of Rugby Park. So Kilmarnock coming into this one off the back of a defeat at Tynecastle and a 2-2 draw with Motherwell on Friday night since the return of the cinch. They're currently sitting 10th on the table, three points ahead of bottom side Dundee United, they have the eighth best home record in the league. They've played eight, won four, drawn two and only lost two at Rugby Park still this season. Indeed, Kilmarnock, one of the only sides who are still awaiting a win on the road this season. 15 goals scored all season in 18 games. Only Ross County have got fewer goals this season. 11 of those 15 have come at Rugby Park. So um, it's not just Aberdeen who are struggling to do anything on the road interestingly out of those 15 goals only five of them have come from open play this season um won't come as a surprise to anyone come on like the second worst team in the league for shots on target per match averaging only 2.8 and graham you'll love this a shot conversion rate of 5.2 percent which is by quite some distance the worst in the league I love I love these really low stats anyway because I mean that surely has to be horrendous. But I also love them without any context. Yeah. Um, when I think you should keep it that way. So five point two shot conversion for, for someone who gets paid to take shots is quite impressive. I think I'm right in saying I you definitely don't shit. want that guy on your team on fives. No, I think I'm right in saying as well by looking at the numbers. I'm sure that in the Kilmarnock squad. Going to be Ash Taylor with the highest shot conversion, isn't it? No, it's the boy Danny Armstrong who's a midfielder. He's our top okay. scorer. He's got five. But I think, I think I'm right in saying, in the Kilmarnock team, out of all the attackers they have on their books, they've only scored one goal from a striker this season, and that's Kyle Lafferty, who's obviously currently suspended for um, reasons. 
So I guess that's everything. What context would you like to see about that shot conversion rate? Like it's the worst in the league, but yeah. Oh, know, where's if, everyone else? If the best is six, okay, then um, it's not that hilarious. But if the best is sixty, then it's hilarious. But I quite like just seeing them on their own because you look at that and you think five point two percent conversions has got to be terrible. Full stop. Well, to put it in context, Aberdeen's shot conversion rate is ten point eight, so yeah, over it's, double. It's, it's double, but that also just seems Celtics is eleven point really nine. So all the numbers are generally just really quite low. They're not big numbers, I guess. You know when you're. I guess when you look at this, one in ten shots that you hit a goal goes in. That's probably not. It just seems awfully low for people. It does seem low, I suppose. Practice this every day. But I guess it depends how many shots you're taking, I suppose, doesn't it as well? Which is, I think, where the Kilmarnock one becomes even worse because they're not even taking that many shots. Yeah, maybe. So when you're not taking that many shots and you're still only converting 5% of them, that's not great. If you're Celtic and you're taking, you know. Well, I suppose your percentages can be low if you're taking. Celtic are averaging, yeah, Celtic are averaging seven, let's just say nine shots on target per match, and then they're converting 12% of those. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I guess it's hard to kind of really put a lot of context around that, but 5.2% just seems funny, so fuck it. Yeah, um, With Kilmarnock, so we've said that we only scored five goals from open play this season. Eight goals from set pieces, so that bodes well for us um, on Wednesday night, because, you know, we're really fucking good at defending set pieces. Um, they are overperforming their set play expected goals of 5.43 by quite a decent margin. So well done, Kilmarnock. Um, top scorer, we're just touching on it, Danny Armstrong, midfielder. He's got five this season. By the same token, though, Kilmarnock are the worst team in the league at defending set plays. The worse than us. <laughs> They've conceded 10 set play goals this season. That's from a set play expected goals against the 5.87. So really, really overperforming, underperform, underperforming on that metric. So if they're worse than us does that just mean they leave everyone up for the counter i don't know what they're doing it, it just seems the goalie with the opposition it seems incredibly un-derek mckinnis like yes them being strong at set pieces seems very Derek mckinnis but the fact that they're strong in one box at set plays yeah but, but not another. the other end is very very odd i don't understand that at all yeah um <clears throat> they've got the second worst defensive record in the league full stop they concede on average 1.8 goals our game which is just slightly above ourselves because we touched on it earlier on we are now the third worst defence in the league in terms of style of play it's probably exactly what you'd expect from a Derek McInnes side the 4-2-3-1 they're not taking a lot of time in the ball they're not putting pretty passes of uh, passages of play together averaging 2.29 passes per sequence which is the fourth lowest in the league moving up the park relatively quickly an average direct speed of 1.65 metres per second which is the fourth quickest in the league they've had 45 passages of play with 10 or more passes in it this season across what's that 18 league games that's the fourth lowest in the league so you're not going to rugby park to watch any football any football or what's it again tiki taka <laughs> yeah um yeah <laughs> in terms of zones of control i'll share the graphic out again uh the blue is where kamarik are dominating the red is where the opposition are um that's also shooting from left to right if you're looking at that so um not going well for Kamarnock at the moment. Not really, but something tells you that might change come Wednesday. Exactly. In terms of press, their mid-table, uh, or mid, as Gav would like to say, a PPDA of a 12.8, but so far they've not converted any high turnovers into goals so far this season. So, Graham, I guess a tricky tie, you would imagine, because Kamarnock are doing it okay at home so far. Um 
although they've got the eighth worst record in the league at home, it seems that this is the a, a, a constant across the league. Teams are performing quite well at home. By the way, we keep reading that out, but in general, yeah, unless you're the top teams, football is a bit of a home and away sport, isn't it? So it seems more that way this season than than in a while, to be honest. Um, but you'd imagine. McInnes is going to really be up for this one because obviously we gave them a bit of, a, bit of a scudding at Pataudry yep. early in the season. You've got to imagine he'll be looking to try and target our mental fragility, <laughs> which is being very polite. Yep. We'll have Anthony Stewart out with suspension, um, which might actually be a positive. <laughs> um, mm. Big question mark about Duke, I think, because he he really looked to be struggling um, on Saturday. Bejewin, I Doubt will be back, but we will wait and see. A lot of chat about Ilba Ramadani possibly being suspended. He picked up his fifth booking of the season against Rangers last week. But there's a bit of me thinks that in Scotland that six bookings is what triggers a suspension. There's not been any wordies out. I've had a look at this. I can't find it anywhere. I did dig into the SFA rules and regulations, and it appears to me that it's a sixth booking, but that was from a couple of seasons ago. That, that handbook's not been updated either by the SFA. They don't so, look at it anyway. I know, I don't know. It could have been I, from like 1880. I was honestly Just trying to scan to find it and I was like, the latest versions of 2020, 2021 and I'm sure it's six bookings there. So he might not be out, but we'll wait and see. Who knows? It's fucking Scotland. Who knows? Yeah, um, yeah. So it's going to be interesting. We touched on it a little bit in the review of the St. Mirren game. Do we do we switch shape now? Um, to go back to back four? There's an argument to say we kind of have to in order to put some sort of team out there that we can... Um, that we can compete with because the alternative is you put Jack McKenzie back in on on the left-hand side of the back three, but then who plays in the centre? Do you play McCrory or Scales in there? Or do you just play McCrory and Scales and you go... I don't want to see him there either, but he'll play there against Kilmarnock because... he's going to have to now because we've got nowhere else. An interesting part, against St Mirren, I thought there were a couple of times that McCrory came driving out from midfield with the ball and I was a bit like, we're kind of missing that still in the centre of the park. Somebody who can just physically drive. Broken record... He's much, much better in the midfield. He's generally, generally times his tackles quite well. He's quite strong in the tackle. He's quite strong in the ball, physically and technically. And, you know, those sort of driving runs, he can get us up the pitch. So he's just, he's a midfielder, in my opinion, not a defender. And yeah. this constant chopping and changing just doesn't do anyone any favours. And I just think we we seem to be a little soft in the midfield. So taking out your most combative midfielder, to put into a defence that's still going to concede anyway doesn't really yeah. do any favours. I mean, Hayden Coulson seemed to pick up a knock. There's a surprise on Saturday as well, so he might not be available. I think if you switch to back four, I'm not sure you can play Matty Kennedy as a right back. He's done it a couple of times before, but I think he's if you're going to play him there, I think he's better as a right wing back where you can get forward a bit more. Um, so it might see Jaden Richardson come back in again. Uh, yeah, it's grim, grimacing. Um I think there's a lot of things he's going to have to try and solve Goodwin now for this game on Wednesday. I could see a few injuries mounting up. Like I say, I don't know if Ramadani is in or out. If he's out, I think that leaves us with a bit of a problem in the centre of the park. I can't imagine you go, if you go back to back four, can you really play with Barron and Clarkson as your two holding midfielders? I think, yeah, I think that would be but who a do you really play instead? bold call. But also, who do you play instead? So... <laughs> But what she's like, I don't get paid to make these decisions, so none of this is an excuse when we lose, in no. my opinion. But I don't get paid the bucks to sign these guys or figure out how to get a team on the pitch. 
Uh, but uh, there's probably a bit more thinking to be done for Wednesday than he's maybe had to do the last few weeks when he's had, generally speaking, what he would probably consider as eleven available. Yeah, I think I think if if Ramadan is available, I I think we probably still stick with a back three somehow. I'm not sure how he does that to be honest uh, it might be a bit hodgepodge and it ends up with scales as the center of the three and he plays yep. with mckenzie again this probably depends on what hayden colson's doing or how fit johnny hayes is because if hayes can come back in then at least you've got some options elsewhere um i can't see us going four two three one at all because i don't see how he doesn't play ross mccrory in the back line for this game given stewart's out so who knows? Being tries to see what he decides to do, and also with Duke being out as well, it raises a question, or potentially being out, it raises a question mark about what he does up up at the top end of the park as well. Miofsky didn't have a great game at St Mirren. Um, again, I'm not sure if he's flattering to deceive, or it's just more of a he's just not getting the ball to do anything with. Yeah, I was going to say he's gone off the boil, but it's difficult to determine. Is it him? Is it the team? It's most likely a bit of both. That's generally how these yeah. things go. But I, I know what you mean. He's not in the sort of form that whilst I think he's generally better served having someone up there with him, if he was in good form, he'd probably say, look, for the game, just put him up there. He's He's been getting chances. He's been taking them. He'll be full of confidence. We'll probably be all right. Doesn't really sum him up right now. But again, we don't have options. You know I mean? like I've said it before and I've said it on Twitter in the week. It was like every game that Christian Ramirez misses, he becomes like prime Didier Drogba in the eyes of the support sometimes about his ability to hold the ball up because he was hopeless at doing that last season when he was one up top. So... Yeah, uh, yeah, there's no way... He's not a target, man. No, no, ab- absolutely not. If we start with... Like, if he decides that's what he's doing, then I'll be tapping out before I kick off. <laughs> Excellent, love the stuff. Well, are you going to give us a... Let, let's go for a quick prediction, Graham, for it's Wednesday gonna night. It's going to be disgusting and we'll ship a stupid goal in the 94th minute. Excellent, so what's 1-0 come on, right? 1-0 come on. Excellent. Uh, I think it's the first time any of us have ever predicted against the Dons, you know that? We're away from home on a pretty poor run against the I just don't see where we've got and potentially with a slightly yeah. cobbled together team I just can't see it although I guess it's like caveat to that is a yeah, record down there is decent a record down there is good yeah and yeah. you know if, I guess that exists for a reason so that may give me a little bit of confidence but I just think that the way we're going at the moment I, I don't see us taking the game to them and we'll we'll concede something stupid because we always do. Yeah, I I tend to agree. I was gonna be I was thought I was gonna be the guy this week um, breaking the the habit of a lifetime. But I I'm struggling to see how we pick up anything on Wednesday night the way things are going just now. So I'm gonna say Kilmarnock two, Aberdeen one. Um, at one goal from Ash Taylor is our goal as well. <laughs> you were gonna go for that, <laughs> but he scores two at the other end. Yeah, to, yeah, to get the win. So. Ash has yeah. the last laugh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really struggle to see us picking up anything this week. I think mentally we're all over the place. Um, I think there's going to be challenges with the team, how he sets us up. And I think it plunges huge, huge pressure on him ahead of the visit of Ross County on the 2nd of January. I, I honestly really think this is getting into critical stages now of Jim Goodwin's uh, tenure as Aberdeen manager and how he how he reacts and deals with this in the next in the next four weeks. I think we'll decide how long he's uh, employed at AB24, I think. I think the January transfer window is also quite a big deal to see what we can or can't do to... Yeah, because like you said, he was pretty vocal around how he was going to play 
got a whole bunch of guys to do that and then decided that, nah, I'd rather do something different. I don't need them. So it'll be interesting to see what we do in January. Is that, you know, is that continuation of the three and this is the new philosophy or will there be some sort of acknowledgement that the reason here, yeah. the reasons that existed for changing the shape now don't exist or we're going back to the way it was so we can utilise the players that are coming back from injury maybe and the ones he's got and recruit a couple to fit that system or do I, we just scattergun it? I, don't I mean, this might be part of the reason why he did get the vote of confidence. Uh, there's been some rumours during the course of the week that we've seen that we've already agreed a couple of deals for a couple of players in the January window for which we're paying fees for. Um, so it could be the case that that's part of the reason why he's going to get this this season because they are actually going to back him in January and give him some cash to spend. Because again, the previous two managers were not backed in their respective January windows. Which Absolutely not. Didn't help at all. So that might also be part of the reason, yeah. I guess, that we see the good. Let's let's see what happens. Like I say, they're just rumours at the moment. Um, I'm intrigued to see if they do come off because we do know the January market can be a difficult one to navigate sometimes. Um, unless you find players who you really want and who are suddenly available. Um, they're not just being shipped out of their clubs because of reasons um, elsewhere. <laughs> so let's yeah, yeah. let's find out. Let's see what happens. But I think I do think the next three four weeks are going to be critical. Um, anyway, let's let's move on, shall we? And that will wrap up this first half of this episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Join us on the other side as we'll bring you part three of our exclusive interview with Brian Irvin. Welcome back to the ABZ Football Podcast. Now, before we move on to our interview with Brian Irvin, we just want to give a quick shout out to Inverness Don for his contribution to the ABZ Football Podcast Beer and Coffee Fund this week. And to all of you who've contributed over the year, we absolutely appreciate it. Your bread is very, very, very much welcome. If you'd like to help keep us fueled in beers or coffee or whiskey, it is that time of year after all then please head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash ABZ Football Podcast. The link is in the description. It is absolutely very, very much appreciated. Now, again, I just want to quickly touch on it. We've had some really good responses to our first installments of my favourite game with Duncan Shearer and Martin Stone. Plan, again, is just to get a mixture of fans, ex-players, managers, etc. to come on, talk to us about their favourite game involving the Dons. If you would like to get involved, please hit us up on Twitter, email us at abzfootballpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us what game you've picked, why you've picked it. It could be for any reason. We've touched on it before. Might be something silly, something sentimental about it, whatever. Hit us up. We'll do our best to get you on the show. We've got a couple of them already in the can, already lined up to come out over the next few weeks. But anyway, without any further ado, it's time now to round off our interview with the one and only Brian Irvin, a man signed by uh, by Aberdeen and Alex Ferguson in the summer of 1985, going on to make 387 appearances in red scoring 40 goals so better than one in 10 for centre half that's not bad going it is of course the one and only Brian Irwin I was just going to touch on that I mean I guess there's, there's, there's two things to unpack at that I guess really quickly uh, Brian did you find that like, your relationship with Willie changed obviously when he became manager as opposed to how it would have been as a teammate and do you think in a way that didn't help Willie from one perspective that there were still so many guys in the dressing who he, who he had been teammates with that did he have to almost try and come in and be a lot more over, I don't want to say overbearing, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like had to almost 
look as though he was a manager who wasn't going to take any nonsense type thing, you know? Yeah, no, no, I don't think so, uh, Gary, because the thing with Wally was, when Wally was a player, Wally was very much Wally mm-hmm. himself. He, he was a teammate, he was a team player, but he was also a, an individual. So there wasn't the same pr- pressure for him to uh, keep teammates happy. Mm-hmm. He was friends with when he played. He, he was his own man when he played, so he had a kind of clean slate. So, no, I didn't find that was a, an issue for Wally. And okay. I think the thing... Uh, I think the thing um, you know, it was just difficult for Wally because initially he was successful, and again, like in Porterfield, there was a, a lot of times he came. I mean, one season we were runners up in all three. Well, yeah, I was going to talk about this one. That ninety two ninety three season um, yeah. is unbelievable. Like, and it's 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 interesting you talking about how you felt you were kind of under pressure and had to prove yourself and yeah. and everything, and maybe even the young lads like like Ian, like Scotty, like some of these yeah. other boys had to prove themselves. Like you play like forty eight games that season. Um, I know. Scored eight goals um, in that season. We we finished second, like you say, to Rangers in, yeah. in all those competitions. And for me, like when I look back on my kind of younger days, that was almost like my favourite Aberdeen team of all time was that 92-93 team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we scored some in daft, like 111 goals across all competitions. We only conceded 36 that season. So yeah. whilst maybe everyone's having to feel they're proving themselves, it feels like it's kind of getting tangible results to, to a certain extent. We're getting great results. Some seven nils, seven, yeah. you know, the big scoring wins, six twos against Hearts and things like that. So, you know, really good game. And that's that. That's the thing. I think that, I'm not saying it was a fear factor, but there was definitely something with Wally that you, you just didn't want to let him down. Yeah, there was a wee bit of fear factor for me, even though you're now an experienced player playing with Scotland, playing um, regular for Aberdeen. It's not as if you're a young boy. Like, we're speaking about Ian and Scott Booth and, you know, they're young players, but, you know, he just had that fear factor with Wally and I think in a positive sense it was good because it mm. made you play your best to try and stay in the team but always uptight that if you made a mistake it would cost, obviously, the, maybe in the, in the game you're playing in but more importantly cost your place in the team. So that, yeah. that was a healthy thing, I think, whereas somebody like, you know, Alex Smith or... or you didn't have that same fear factor mm. um, because it's, it's a, there would have been that fear factor under Alec Ferguson, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it was just that way that maybe Wally picked it up off Alec Ferguson or, or maybe it's Wally's character. You see, Sifford is different. Alex, Alex McLeish, I think, I've never played under Alec as a manager. Um, I think he would be a player, a manager, sorry, who would try and encourage you to get the best out of you rather than mm. drive you through being afraid to lose your place in the team they're not playing well. You know, there's different management styles and, you know, Wally had a certain style that ultimately didn't work out but for the majority of his Aberdeen management career was, was relatively successful. Yeah, I mean, I still think to this day that it's a cry and shame that that 92-93 team in particular didn't win something. Yeah. That yeah. season, it really deserved it. Um, and, and interestingly, that the ninety three ninety four season, you know, the season after, um, remarkably, our, our league form is tremendous. That season, we finished second again to Rangers, yeah. but we yeah. only finished three points behind them. Bearing in mind, this was at the time it was still two points for a win. Yeah. Um, but we drew twenty one games that season. Um, yeah. um, you know, it's one of those kind of what could have been's, I guess. And yeah. again, though, you know, you're talking about. <laughs> That, that fear about being dropped and having to prove yourself. Yeah. Well, he obviously did rate you because you make the most appearances of anyone in the squad that season, 54. 
in total. Mm-hmm. Another eight goals. You end yeah. up as the third top goal scorer that season, actually, um, which is interesting. Um, but it's that close season, I think. This is the one where Willie kind of starts to wield the axe a little bit. Um, you know, yeah. Jim yeah. Bett, Bobby Connor, Alex McLeish leave. Lee Richardson decides he's, he's done his two seasons in Scotland, which is what he set out to do. I think it looks to a lot of people from the outside and we're in the process of talking to, to, to Willie as well about um about his time at Aberdeen and we'll come on to his managerial career yeah. at, at a certain point. It feels to me from the outside, it looks like it's just like Willie's sheer determination to win and can't finish second. Yeah, Maybe gets the better from here a little bit and he makes maybe just too many changes in, too in much. one season and the kind of quality of player that comes in to replace is just not quite there. Is no. that fair? Yeah. No, hundred percent spot on, Gary. I mean that's so 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 true. I mean he brought good players in, but he let go international players. Okay, majority and then their careers, but still international players. And you mentioned the ones he's let go already, including Jim Bett. He then proceeded to let go of Stuart McKimmy, Brian Grant, and then myself, ultimately in the end of ninety seven. So that's that's a real that's about for 50, 40 years of experience at Aberdeen professionally. Mm-hmm. He's let go and he's brought in new players who get one year of experience at Aberdeen or three years of experience at Aberdeen maybe during their comparison time. So, you know, they were good players but they just didn't have the, the experience of playing for Aberdeen at a top level and, you know, Peter Heatherson, all good players mm-hmm. at the clubs they were at before but were the Aberdeen players, you know, with the Aberdeen standard of players, would they have gotten into the team in the 1991 season and gone further by 84, 85 season? I would say no, because, you know, that, yeah. that was a different mentality of a player. Even just their approach to how they, they used to approach their games, because a lot of them lived in the Glasgow area and they just yeah. come up to live in Aberdeen during the week and then go home after the game on the Saturday and come back up on the Monday morning before training. So that wasn't, to me, I didn't think that was professional. Uh, you know, commit to commitment, because I'm thinking 100% commitment. You live where you stay. You play, sorry, where you stay. Yeah. And um, you, you, they weren't showing that. And again, the maturity of Billy Dodge, for example, I think Billy matured, not during his time at Aberdeen, but obviously beyond Aberdeen, that, he would have been a different player from the initial time at Aberdeen. So again, a really good player then, and even better later. But, you know, that's not the type of player that was uh, there before. And so too many players came in similar to that that let, made us no longer that, that wee bit extra about Aberdeen team. Just became like a mother or a mid-table or a team in the you know, the Premier League. And that's yeah. basically what happened with a lot of draws again. We're in the middle of the table and even more draws were slipping down the table. And I'm also getting injured. So I, get, I remember getting an operation in November. So I had to get a knee operation and, and, was, and we're hearing I was losing 2-1 to Falkirk at Brockville in my bed uh, from the hospital where I was getting the knee operation. I think, oh no, that's another defeat. And that's when it starts to go from mid-table, suddenly you're down the bottom. And now you're looking yeah. at the, the turn of the year. Again, a few more draws and things are going really bad. Um, 
where it was I think February time that season where Wally ended up losing his job but by this time you're now in, in, in real dire trouble and, and, and becoming in the unthinkable possibility of Aberdeen possibly getting relegated which is now a whole new scenario you touched up there. You you kind of miss out like the October to kind of February or there or thereabouts of that um of that period, um, the day that Willie sacked. I mean, because that still seems like something almost unfathomable. The idea that Willie Miller would be sacked by Aberdeen Football Club after yeah. what he'd done as a player. What was it like around the club when when that kind of news broke? It was it was not quite like a, a funeral, but it was it was like a bereavement. You know, something had gone wrong and it was serious, worse than you know. I suppose it was similar to Alec, Alec Ferguson, but I wasn't as experienced enough to experience what was going on at the club. Um, but it was that sort of feeling. Uh, but Roy, Roy's character's quite buoyant and quite positive, so he kind of lifted the place and, you know, we got the club immediate win against Rangers. And the, Rangers. And then a the big yeah. setback with the cup, cup game against Dennis Muir, which... I didn't get the. I, I can't take any responsibility really because I, I was on the bench. I came on when it was already one, I think, and just after I came on, it was two now, and so it was kind of one of those games that you you try and been better than not being on the bench even. But you know, it was it was this time we just obviously just the team wasn't right for that getting through against Stenish Muir. How can you lose to Stenish Muir at Aberdeen? And that was that should have been the real wake up call that we're in trouble. Um, yeah, but thankfully, that was when Roy actually gave me, brought me back in because it, I think just after that, having got the good result against Rangers, we were due to play Celtic, and I wasn't due to play because I went away on the Friday with the team picked, and John Ingalls was going to be in instead because John Ingalls was signed by Wally, for example, to replace me. That's what I used to fear about losing my place, and that's okay. what had happened when Wally signed John Ingalls to replace me because he literally did during that season, and with injuries, I wasn't able to basically get get back into the team and, and overtake him again. But but the Celtic game in the March, I think, or the time of the year was coming up and I, was, I came into the game thinking I was just, I, the 11 was named, I, I could have been on the bench, but I didn't think I'd even been on the bench because it was usually as a centre-half, you're on the 11 or you're not including the, 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 the bench. So I just expected to watch it from mm-hmm. the stand. But John Ingalls had, complained of pulled up with a hamstring injury overnight for whatever I don't know how that happened because he didn't as far as I knew he was okay on the Friday but I'm not caring because I get thrown into the game against Celtic and I thought normally if I'd been thinking about this game I'd have been nervous leading up to it but I'm not going to lose here I wasn't even going to be playing and Roy's just called me at the office at two o'clock to say you'll need to play and uh, so just go out here with nothing to lose and that's sometimes your attitude that helps, isn't it? If you're too uptight, too up, too keyed up for a game, it can work against you. But in this game, I'm going kind of carefree, which is unusual for me. And mm-hmm. you know, I'll, that that's probably my best ever goal I scored in football. The cross from Joe Miller, I take it down with the outside of my right foot, and the, as the ball bounces up, a half volley with my left foot, I cross Pat Bonner into the net, one 0 Messi esque style, <laughs> without. Absolutely. Hey, listen, for me, what a finish anyway, it is. For me, I mean, it's, it's, no, it's a tap in or a header, but that was can be a bit of skill. I, I scored a good goal against Clyde Bank, a Scottish Cup tie, didn't it? Cobau again in 93, I think. But this was as good a goal as I'd, I'd ever scored. And so we ended up winning 2 0 against Celtic. 
and got a bit of momentum going. Although we, I think we lost against Moyle the following week, but we we're on a run. I'm saying, yeah, it seemed to spark a yes. bit of momentum suddenly. And it's a season that looked dead and buried. Like, we looked absolutely doomed. Um, yeah, not just for the... Wouldn't have been the playoff, would have been relegated. And so we got on yeah. a good run and won. I got a lot of the games in that run. run. But it's still not enough to get us out of the playoff position. Enough, we'd won enough games to get us off the bottom game, including the key one against Dundee United at Petordry, which, you know, for winning the Scottish Cup final for Aberdeen was special. But in some respects, Gary, winning that Dundee United game and, and also that whole season as a whole, dis- disappointing as it was in the whole, playing your part and helping Aberdeen stay up means as much to me yeah. as winning the Scottish Cup. Because I, I would have been, to be part of an Aberdeen team that was relegated would have been horrible for me as, a, as an Aberdeen fan. So to win and stay up out the the, the relegation year that year means as much to me as, as winning the Scottish Cup with Aberdeen and, and, and also the, the response of the fans it galvanised the fans and the crowds like the Petordry against Indian United it was a full house and you know yeah. the, the response for a 2-1 win we got that day um, and then the two games against Inferno in the playoff the fans it was it, you could just tell there was something there was no trophy to show for it at the end of it but you could just tell the fans it meant something is though that would survive not being relegated. And again, just like you say, the 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 sting in the tail from the year we missed out in winning the league in ninety one was the uh, Alex when Alex Smith was was sacked when we finished we were mid table. This the opposite happened here. We survived the the playoff against Inferman and although we'd only finished ninth in the league, it felt he'd won something. And then carried that on yeah. the next season when we did actually win the League Cup and it was a momentum from the season before and the success of finishing the season well in the playoffs that carried that on the, the, the games that won the League Cup against Indy and although because of the health issues I had I, I wasn't involved in the, the, the League Cup win against Dundee in October that year which I, I, I was yeah. in the squad and I was so frustrated and I I know you get no sentiment in football and Roy could have put me on the bench but he didn't because again on that day you're only two subs but this time they're two subs plus a goalie but he didn't yeah. so I was sitting in the stand happy for the team to have won but so disappointed because I had some health tra- uh, trauma to go through in the summer after mm-hmm. we survived the playoff in 95 so I had the health problem can got back training and actually was close to being in the team and ironically I played I was on the subs bench the following week after the cup final win against Dundee against Kilmarnock yeah Roy yeah rightly so as a manager you can't show sentiment in football but I just felt that would have meant so much to me at the time because of this trauma the health problem I had in 95 summer had I got on the bench to just be part of that success but then who knows a manager can't, as I say, make any decisions in certain because I don't know, but I don't think they did. But maybe the two subs that had in the bench that day played a part in us winning the cup. And the most important thing was Aberdeen winning the cup, and that's what happened in '95 when we beat beat Dundee. But it was disappointing for me personally because of all that I'd went through after the, yeah. the health problem I had in the summer, after the success of staying up in the league in '95, and then carrying it on into the success of the start of the season. But. but but, but coming back into the team 
I got back playing again. So that that was success for me as a on a personal level because you know because of the health problem I had. Well, I was just going to touch on this yeah, point if that's all right. Because um, I mean, like for a lot of our younger listeners, maybe who won't remember this um, this period of time, obviously you kind of you, you touched on there. We 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 stay up via the playoffs. Um, that running, yeah. unbelievable. The atmosphere in Petodre at that point was, was electric. I mean, it's still to stay some of my favourite games I've ever attended at Petodre. Um, looking back now in retrospect, mainly because Absolutely. of the atmosphere yeah. and everything around them. Going into them, it was terrifying. But you know, um, but then yeah, you kind of touched on it. That that summer of '95, um, you you know personally received the, the yeah. life changing news um, for yourself about the fact you've been diagnosed yeah. with multiple sclerosis. I mean, just if you can talk to us about how the diagnosis came around, and then. I mean, like for you, like you must have been really concerned. This is going to mean well, a potentially yeah. the end of your career, but also just how that's going to affect your life on a much more general kind of level. Totally, that, that's exactly what went through your head. I mean, just to finish up in the, the success of that season, despite mm-hmm. only finishing uh, successful in the playoff, it was the atmosphere that was created by the fans, and, and you know I think that's what makes it such a special season because we won the cup. When you win the Scottish Cup, the League Cup, or nearly win the league, that's special. But this was more special, actually, winning up, staying up. And as I say, at the end of the day, you've got no trophy to lift up. There's no playoff trip, cup you can lift. But it was just this, the atmosphere that within Petardry and within the city even was was tangibly right behind the team. Everybody was positive. We'd get out, we were in the situation. And I just felt, I felt, you know, in the, the running games that I was picked to play in these games... You know, it was almost like that Celtic day where there was nothing to lose, but you were going to, you, if you did lose, it was everything to lose. And so, just so good that you yeah. get out of the situation. And again, going back to the being an Aberdeen fan, to be, I don't want to be associated with a team that was relegated. It would have put a lot of things in the bin almost if you'd been relegated after all that. Um, so, that's how that season, and for an Aberdeen fan, I don't know, you'll not get an atmosphere like that again, I don't think. It's, it's almost in a comparison, but not quite, but with the Bayern Munich game in 1984, you know, when we were in the 83, sort of, when the League Cup winners yeah. cup, so it's, it was as special as that. But yeah, then it went to the, the, the unbelievable life-changing situation where I found myself again getting another knee operation, so I was dogged with injuries that season and had an injury earlier in the season so I got another knee operation at the end of the season after I'd survived against Dunfermline and came out of the hospital and I just thought because of the, the, the operation in my knee and the tingling in my legs that was the connection but the doctors didn't seem so sure about that and, and the reason for that was I'd got an mm-hmm. MRI scan during the season because I'd been getting headaches and they checked up on that to make sure the headaches were okay it turned out the headaches were okay but they found something in the scan, the MRI scan they did. They explained to me at the time there was something there, but it should be okay. I wouldn't worry about it. But it must have been something to do with what, what they can diagnose for MS, plaques in your brain or whatever it, it can cause the, mm-hmm. the MS symptoms. So, But they never made a highlight of it because it was the first time it happened. The whole idea is it's got to be a couple of times at least something's happened. So... This second time when I then had this tingling in my legs, I thought this was a second episode of it. And so I was in hospital getting steroids and I got an intravenous thing in my uh, back fluid to check the protein counting in there and things. And, and after I'd been in hospital for just about a week, the doctor, I remember, coming along telling, telling me that 
you would hope it'd make a full recovery this time, but there was a it's a case that this in his opinion was that this seems to be pointing towards MS. And then that's just the world changing event. For me at the time it was like the world just ground to a halt and it was like almost like the end of the world. And so but thankfully here we are thirty thirty years, thirty five years later and I've been mm-hmm. I've been okay. So I didn't know that then. The prognosis you just don't know, so I didn't know what was going to happen. So at the time, it was like potentially frightening, but um, the first thing to get back was to get back playing, which after about four or five months, I managed to get back two or three months during the summer, and then the first three, four months of the season, I eventually made my first game back at Ross County in a friendly uh, up in Dingwall to open up the, the new stand and came on as a, off the bench. Caught a lot of people be surprised. So I don't think people know, thought I was going to be involved. It had been announced in the mm-hmm. papers and things like that. So I remember the paper, the cameramen there snapping away, and it was in the paper the next day. I'd come back and came back in that in that game, and then the following weekend, I think midweek game against Kilmarnock, we played. Sorry, the weekend we played Kilmarnock. In fact, I came on as a sub against Kilmarnock, and the Richard Don lights went out. First place without us, right? Yeah. Whether that was coincidence or what, I don't know. My first touch was to lay the ball to the right back or Dean Windus, I think, in the midfield. And just at that, the lights went out. I thought I've, I've either died or, you know, I don't know <laughs> what's happened here. But obviously, it became clear it was the lights. And so the game was abandoned. So the next week, the game was replayed against Kilmarnock. And, and I was in, John again had done in, another injury. So I came in on the Saturday. Against Motherwell, one one nil. The following Wednesday against Kilmarnock, the replayed game for the lights going out. We ended up winning at four one. It went from a, a seven thousand crowd. To, I think everybody getting free for the rearranged game. So it was a full house. <laughs> in the midweek game, I had against Kilmarnock. I think I played the third game and within a week. And uh, I can't remember how that went. Maybe lost it. I think or I can't remember how that one went. But I was back playing regular again, which was that was. That's incredible, you know, given yeah. the relatively short period of time that's passed since the summer. For for you to be battling full time first team football was unbelievable. Well, you've been yeah, you've been through all the the, the trauma, the diagnosis, and and then you've managed to get mm-hmm. disappointment football wise and not quite making the final squad. It would have been unfair to be in this. The other thing is, well, I'm thinking back now. You know, if I played as a sub. It would have been sentiment, I think, because you know I hadn't played any of the games leading up to it because I still wasn't available and fit to, to play in the games. But I was close. I was so mm-hmm. close. It would been another month or another two weeks later. I think I could have been in the squad and on the, not necessarily playing in the eleven, but on the bench. I was back on the yeah. bench the following week, as I say, against um, Kilmarnock when I came on and that the lights went out. So it was so close. But in perspective, in general, you know. I had a lot to be thankful for and I was thankful that I was back yeah. playing and, you know, I'm thankful more so to this day that generally I've been okay um, and, I'm th- you know, because I didn't know at that time how it was going to affect me and whether, whatever it does. All I, all I know now is I can't take my health for granted. But that's nothing mm-hmm. really has changed about that. It's just a false idea you have that you can take your health for granted because, you know, people get bad news about their health at any point, so it's just a false idea. You are that we're all invincible. I I know I'm not invincible. I know I can't take my health for granted, but 
nothing really changes. It's just an attitude, isn't it? Uh, no, exactly. Absolutely. I think I speak for like you know every Aberdeen fan out there, Brian. When I say that we're delighted to hear that obviously that everything's you know ah, thanks, great Gary. and there's not been any real you know issues off the back of that since uh, since then and that you're you're doing well and healthy at the moment. Um, that um. So once you make your return, you're pretty much straight back into that starting lineup. Aberdeen finished the season well. We end yeah. up in third spot um, that season. So we win the League Cup, end up in third spot. Um, things are looking on a much more positive way now. Um, but again, like Roy Aitken seems to make a similar mistake to his predecessor here in this close season. There's a big coast of changes yeah. again. Um, the likes of Ilian Kiriakov, uh, Zanko Svetinov, Tony Kumbolari all come in. They come in on like, big wages, yeah. big fees and all that. Stalwarts like Brian Grant, Stuart McKimmy, they they leave yeah. during the course of that season as well. We end up finishing sixth. Um, for you, were you kind of starting to get concerned about the direction that maybe the club was kind of heading in at that point? Yeah, and I thought a lot was my testimonial season. I could feel that Stuart and Brian had been released during that season, mm-hmm. and there was no sign of me getting a new contract. And I'm um, I'm kind of desperate in the same way that I did in the uh, out out. A big initial stage with Alec Ferguson had a sign basically although at that time you're obviously an established player a Scottish internationalist so you know I wasn't wanting to negotiate I just would like to sign but there was no sign of any contract coming and, and it was awkward probably in hindsight now looking back for Roy because it was maybe awkward for him and so the reason he wasn't wanting to sign um, it's because it's he just couldn't make his mind up and mm-hmm. uh, it was really awkward though. It was before the last game at Kilmarnock. I was in the squad to go down to Kilmarnock. I probably wasn't going to be playing. Probably back to John was the centre half at this time. But I came in, in in the Friday afternoon to go on the bus to go down to Kilmarnock and Roy called me in the office and just told me the news. Look, I don't think there's any point you coming down tomorrow to rugby part because you're not you're not in my, my starting eleven and uh the thing you've you've been asking me about the contract, I've had to make the hard decision that you're, I'm not going to give you a new contract. Okay. So that was how I found. I went home that day. My wife was actually on holiday with two daughters, where mum and dad, because uh, it was you know before the end of the season. I mm. obviously couldn't go off on holiday, so I went home myself, and I was I was in tears. I was uh, upset to the point of, you know like a grown man crying. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was just the highs and lows of football. This was one of the lows. I thought I could have stayed at Aberdeen and spent the rest of my career at Aberdeen and never thought anywhere else to go play football other than Aberdeen. And that now choice would have been taken away from you. Just like you, you, you falsely think you can mm-hmm. choose, but you can't. You can't choose to play for a team. It's whether the manager or the team want you or you don't get picked or you don't get signed. So it's the same case here. When somebody lets you go, you've no choice to say, but I want to stay. It doesn't yeah. matter. I want to stay even after 12 years, even though it's my testimonial season. And as hard as you've been, the day before the last game of the season, you're called into the manager's office and said, but there's no point coming down the bus. Just go home and I'm not going to sign you next next season. Uh, so that was, I can't... That, that, Without being cliched, I can't really find the right words to, to tell you how how low that was, Gary. That was yeah. as low, as and you just had to get on with it again. Resilience has to kick in, and you know, I signed for Dundee, and I think I did okay with Dundee. We won the championship, we got into the Premier League, and the next year in the Premier League, 
for Dundee, they finished the highest they ever finished. Mm-hmm. They finished fifth above Dundee United. And you know, for me personally, above Aberdeen, which was wasn't I was celebrating or holding my hands up or cheering about, but I was just within myself, quietly thank thankful that I proved Roy wrong. Yeah, I was I was going to bring that up with you about that because I mean. Um... You know, for, for it to happen as well, for you to be let go at the end of your testimonial season as well, um, you know, you're right. Sentiment, sentiment doesn't really have a place in, in football, as as we all know. But it always struck me um, at the time that that was not the right thing um, to have happened um, for for a, for a stalwart like yourself to have been let go at the end of that season there. And you kind of touched on it there. That there must have been a real quiet sense of satisfaction about. Well, you're, you're right. Bro. Sorry, Gary. You're right. Totally, there's no place for sentiment in football, but sentiment means that you're you're getting a place in the game in the team when you don't deserve it. Yeah. But in this case, I felt that wasn't the case, and yeah. I think that's why I get the satisfaction within myself, personally. Nothing public that you got. You did prove Roy wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. Roy ended up in the gym before the first season was out. He was away from Aberdeen anyway. Yeah. So, but he but he made the decisions, and but it, it, I think it. We looking back, if you like, like to speak about history, the history book show. I think he was wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't would have many doubts about that. To be honest with you, You're right? They kind of record book show it, you know. So when I went to Dundee, Dundee had a good season in the Championship. As I say, in the Premier League, they had an amazing season where they finished fifth. Yeah, above Dundee United, I did well and I played every game for Dundee. I think I missed three games for suspension. That for the that was thirty three out of the six, 36 games. Mm-hmm. And near the end of the season, we beat Aberdeen 2-1 at Petaudry. No celebration from me, but a, co- a celebration within to think, well, yeah, I think Paul Hegarty was a manager by this time, Aberdeen. But, you know, I should have been in the Aberdeen team. And, yeah. uh, but that's just how football works. You've no, I don't have the choice. It's a manager, it's a chairman, it's a club that want you or don't want you. And unfortunately, they didn't want me at that stage, but... You know, thankfully, they wanted me for twelve years, and honestly, Gary, I'm just so thankful for those twelve years. Uh, let's. Let, I was going to say, let's um, let's flip it on the positive a little bit, because um, yeah. it did mean that you left Aberdeen, having made a total of three hundred and eighty-three appearances um, in red, scoring forty goals, Brian. Which for a centre half, yeah, I mean, I, not I bad think, going. I think the corner. I said to you about the Messi-esque type goal against Celtic. <laughs> Most of them were headers and uh, tap-ins, but that's that's kind of belittling a bit because you know it's not always easy to score from a corner a lot of it's in the timing yeah. and ensuring you get the end of a cross but also a lot of it's out with your control and, and so the delivery's got to be right so and Aberdeen were quite fortunate during my time at Aberdeen Jim Bett um, in the early yeah. days Peter Weir with, with Aberdeen as well were great deliverers of the ball and so when they put balls in if you had the determination and that kind of desire to get in the end of that header with my height and just that determination to get in, because normally nobody would give you, majority of the goals weren't free headers, mm-hmm. to get the better of your guy that was marking you, and it's just wanting, wanting it more than him, and that's what I wanted to to do that. There was one game there, you mentioned two years in a row where I get eight goals, two two seasons in a row with eight goals, that's almost like a return for a midfielder, isn't it? Yeah, I tell you, Aberdeen could do a strike, it would get eight goals a season over the last yeah. few seasons, you know? Um Nothing better than hitting the back of the net, Richard Donald standing, you know, with a header and the joy that that brought. And it was a wonderful feeling to score a goal and to think you'd score 40 goals. But it was just that determination to, to want to get a goal, to desire. 
Drew Jarvie always used to speak about desire, and that, that's what it was, just that desire, Gary. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, let's say three, 383 appearances, 40 goals, a League Cup and a Scottish Cup winner's medal in the back pocket as well. Um, that means you sit 10th in the Don's all-time appearance list um, at this moment in time. 53rd on the all-time goal scorer list, which, again, for a centre-half is it's not bad going, it's fair to say. Um we just touched on it. You ended up signing for Dundee, spent a couple of seasons there uh, before moving to Ross County in, in 99, finished up your playing career in 2003. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, after retiring from the playing side, had some coaching roles with Ross County, took up um, the manager job at Elgin City for, for a, a year. But you kind of come out of the game a little bit since that. Any thoughts at all on your side, Brian, about looking to get back into the coaching side or is just the footballing side of things just now kind of closed off? Yeah, I think I'm too late now. I think... I think it's it's kind of maybe I'm not past it, but everybody's got a shelf life, isn't it, in football and um, whether it's playing or managing. I've, I've really enjoyed the coaching side, although it's not been as um, well. It wasn't lucrative for me as a player necessarily. It wasn't a thing I would associate with my career, but you earn a living from it. But mm-hmm. certainly from the coaching, that's not been the case. But I've been some of the experience I've had as a coach I'm in America. Um, and my swan song was in 2015 in Korea. Mm-hmm. I helped um, a team in Seoul. You know, some of the experiences I had as a coach have, have, have been pretty special as well. Not as public, obviously, because it's, you know, nobody really knew what you were doing in yeah. America, apart from the people in Cleveland or in Carolina. It was Martin Rennie was the connection okay. I had. He, he was a man, head coach of these teams, and he was just taking me out as assistant and helping him there. And that, some really good experiences and, and opened your eyes to another side of the part of the world that you would never have thought, what am I doing here, you know, otherwise. So really thankful for them. But I think now I was youth coach at Ross County for a season in 2018 to 19 with, with youth, one of their youth teams. And I think it's just, uh, that's me now, as we, we speak, I'm now 57 and a half, nearly near 58 and 57 now, but that's my age now, 57, 8, 58. So you're, it's just like your shelf life maybe has come. I mean, if somebody asked me tomorrow, I'd probably jump at it mm-hmm. because football's in your blood. But it's a bit like, you know, if, if nobody wants to sign you, you're, you can want to play for Aberdeen, but if they, the manager or the club don't want to sign you, you won't go and sign for Aberdeen. So I think your shelf life has come and, and maybe gone in other people's eyes. You know, one of the things I had with MS time was, you know, who would want to sign a footballer with MS? So I'm just thankful that Dundee and Ross County did and prolonged my career by 10 years. I mean, I played more games after that diagnosis with MS than I did before. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I always like to prove people wrong. I've got that resilience in my character. But it's hard to say, you know, whether it, there's, a, there's more life in the old dog yet or whether you've, you've had your innings. And if, if I have had my innings, I'm very thankful for it. But, you know, maybe the, the story isn't finished. Who knows? Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you never say never in football. But all I can say is so far, it's, it was a, it was a, an exciting journey. It took me places I never, ever thought. And I, I was very fortunate to to represent the club I love and the fans that, I, as I say, I'm representing on the park as if I was standing next to them on the, field, on the terracing that I got to play in the park. Um, and if there's another chapter or another few pages of the book to to finish then that'd be wonderful but if it's not and it's over you know i'm so thankful gary listen brian we'll we'll wrap things up here um 
yeah. we really really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us um, tonight um apologies again for taking as long as it has to, to get sorted out i'm glad finally got, we've finally managed to speak and it's it's been great to speak to you gary thank you so much for giving me the opportunity and not a problem listen brian we'll, we'll ask we'll finish up with the same question we ask every single one of our guests that we speak to um it's a very simple question but some of the answers we get are, are phenomenal to this um yeah. What does Aberdeen Football Club mean to you? Yeah, I like the one that's up in the, the you know, the Stefano one. It, mm-hmm. I think that's what it is. It's, it, to me, it's more than just a football club. Um, there's heart and soul. And for me personally, that it always meant, because I had, it was in, you know, it was part of my upbringing. And it, although I wasn't from Aberdeen when I was a young boy, Aberdeen was always home. It's where we're from. And so when I came back, I came to watch games as a boy and the terrace in the South Stand or in the beach end, you know, and I'd go back home after being up visiting my gran and my, my family, uh, relations. It meant so much to me to one day play for the, the club I, I loved and supported as a boy. And then to, re- to get to know supporters, not them all, I don't know every supporter, but just as I've got to know supporters in general and how much it means to them for what I did in the pitch I'm just so thankful to have represented them on the pitch and uh, you know that I haven't got a cliched phrase to put what that means but just Aberdeen means so much to me how how special a club it is more than a football club uh, and just what it meant to me as a boy and able to carry on as a, an adult on the pitch whereas if, if I hadn't been on the pitch I'd have been on the terracing Top man Brian Irvin it's been great having you on the ABZ Football Podcast. Thank you again so much for, not just for talking to us, but for everything you did for, for the club during your period of time here. Top guy, Brian Irvin, stand free. And so that wraps up this week's episode of the ABZ Football Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Please remember to like, subscribe, follow, or whatever on your podcast. Player of choice, join us next time round for episode 78, where we will look back on our clash with Kilmarnock and we'll preview our 2nd of January fixture with Malky Mackay's the big racist fucker Ross County we look forward to seeing you then stand free This episode of the ABZ Football Podcast was brought to you in association with Siberia Bar and Hotel on Belmont Street, Aberdeen. Head into the bar, quote the phrase ABZ Pod, that's ABZ Pod, for a £3 pint of Foster's, £4 pint of Moretti, or £5 pint of Fierce any day of the week, including match days. Siberia is open seven days a week, all year round, and the bar is located only 30 seconds walk from the nearest bus stop taking supporters to Codrey Stadium for free on match days. Come on, you Reds.